The Brandon Peters Show may contain explicit language and detailed plot points. For more information on the show, stay tuned to the end of the episode. Brandon Peters show and rounding into our final month of the summer of 93 at 30 series. It's the summer of 93 at 30. It's just been a weekend by weekend look at the movies released during the summer of 1993. As always with me for this journey. And he's, you know, watched a lot of movies with me in the past two summers. Scott Mendelson from The Rap. Pleasure to be back as always. All right, and enjoying the torture this summer. So far, he's almost through his first one from We Liner, We Live Entertainment, Variety, Why So Blue, and the host of Out Now with Aaron. Dot 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 and Abe. Aaron Newworth. Hey. Yeah. Correct. All right. Correct. Today we'll uh be discussing the film's release. On August 6th through 8th, 1993, a discussion of four films. We're very excited, and Tommy Lee Jones doesn't care at all. So He's not tolerate our, our, our buffoonery. Right. He's not sanctioned our buffoonery. He's not sanctioned our buffoonery. All right. Uh, but before we head into those films that were released this weekend, let's talk about the news that happened in the week of the films. When I wake up, don't you know I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the man who brings the news to you. Monday night at 7.30 on News Channel 2. It's live baseball action from the big city when the Orioles take on the New York Yankees. Enjoy a night in with the boys of summer. Monday night at 7.30. So on August 2nd, Maryland investors led by Baltimore attorney Peter Angelos by the Baltimore Orioles at auction in New York for $173 million, nearly $50 million more than ever paid for a baseball team, which that's a bargain today, right? You would think they'd probably pay more for like, I would uh, think upwards so. of a billion now, probably. Oh, the bird was the word. Depends on how badly the they think they can milk the streamers for live sports rights since that's the only thing that people watch live anymore. That's what they're like. I mean, that's where the streamers go. Like there's a big, uh, as we're talking this summer, stuff might have already moved forward, but like the NBA, their contract with their contract is up for renewal and the streamers are going to want to get into it because that's where their next play is. How do we get live TV here? Um, and Amazon's been playing with it with the NFL. Uh, there's, you know, Peacock had the World Cup on there, and you know that's that's going to be a thing. Uh, although the uh, Phoenix Suns owner said he's going to just air it on local TV. He wants people to watch the games and come to the games. It doesn't want to make it hard for people to find them, so he is bucking a trend. So he may not give in to streaming unless it's 
you know, paid and free, possibly. So we we shall see how that that goes. Something, hear something reasonable come out of Arizona for a change. Right. <laughs> true, true, true. Um, on also that same day, Shamrock Broadcasting, a Disney company, officially takes ownership of Cleveland's WMMS FM 100.7 and WHK AM 1420. The the con. I, I don't know why that's a big deal, but uh Oops, Silver Shamrock owns some radio station. Oh yeah, there you go. Uh also on August 4th now, uh Angolan Air Force bombs Huambo. Okay. Hey. Yeah. But uh Tony Gwynn got six bombs, I mean hits in an eleven to ten win versus the Giants that same day. Uh the fourth <laughs> The fourth time during this season that this Padre has had five or more hits, tying a Major League Baseball record. Yeah, who's your daddy? Yes, Tony. Tony Gwynn. Funny enough, I found out uh, Tony Gwynn passed away a few years ago. uh, Apparently lived here in Indianapolis. He's not from here. He played in San Diego his whole career. Had a place in Carmel, Indiana. Oddly enough, that's where he was living for most of the year. Uh, August 6th, Pope John Paul II publishes Encyclical Veritatis Splendor. Is that the... I don't know what that is. Uh, Scott said he read it. Yes, said of course. He said he's read better. Yes, that's correct. Is that a companion piece of the Pope's Exorcist's uh, work? <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's the sequel is going to be that the adaptation of that. They, the, the Pope's Exorcist's no, no. wife's bodyguard. Exorcist, there's th- that movie bakes in 199 sequel opportunities. So to mm, get we're going to gonna see every one. To get to the Pope's book, it's like wow, they're really reaching already. There you go. <laughs> uh, all right, are uh, the deaths this week? Famous deaths: uh, Scottish actor James Donald, uh, jazz pianist Duke Burrell, astronaut Milt Thompson, and rock musician Randy Hobbs. All right. And born today, we got another, we have an actress, but she's the daughter of Frank and Kathy Lee Gifford, Casalt Gifford. So, and a Japanese singer, Yurina Kuman. You took a pause for that Gifford one. So I'm like, are you waiting for the like Nepo baby imagery to pop up on the editing? I guess so. No, I was just saying like, well, we had, we had the, you know, I, I don't know if anyone's familiar with her, but, um, it's just like the other week we had like the daughter of Steven Seagal and um, the weird science Kelly LeBrock. I was like, that was one of her famous birthdays. It was like, does anybody know that? But it's like two famous people had a child this week. Making so them famous go. by default. <laughs> right, right. Making famous, yeah, famous by default. Um, the C. That's Tom- the C. Go Thomas Howell story, right? So, <laughs> which would lead us in. <laughs> to our first movie this week, That Night. It was 1961, the hottest summer anyone could remember. Cheryl was 17, and I was just some kid across the street. I wanted to dance her dance and dream her dreams. saw their first kiss. Listen, Ellie, now could you keep your secret if I asked you to? Sure. 
Directed by Craig Bulletin, written by Alice McDermott, Craig Bulletin, and then starring C. Thomas Howell, Juliette Lewis, Helen Shaver, Eliza Dushku, Catherine Heigl, and Becky Ann Baker. And Long Island, New York, summer 1961, preteen Alice follows from across the street the glamorous life of Cheryl, 17, with bowling alley Rick, no age given. A friendship develops as Alice helps Cheryl see Rick. So, uh, yeah, that night. Was this a, I hadn't seen that night. I didn't know that night was that night till this. So, uh, Scott, thoughts on that night? Uh, I enjoyed it. It's a very unassuming, what you see is what you get coming of age melodrama. Obviously, it was fun seeing Alicia Dushku and Catherine Eigel in their film debuts. Um it's, I mean, it, it doesn't go anywhere that you don't expect. It doesn't really do much that you don't expect, but it is a good, thoughtful, engrossing, and well-acted version of what it is. Um, Juliette Lewis is obviously giving a, st- a genuine star turn. Um, and I think the film kind of balances the line between openly acknowledging the... Uh, certain what's the term repressed for lack of a better word Mm -hmm. mentality of that era while also offering empathy to its characters even in that you know their behavior seems backwards by quote-unquote today's standards that's not to say that we are all enlightened today that's a different conversation you know 30 years ago you could make a movie like two wong fu thanks for everything and nobody would give a shit um that being said you know it's 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 one of a number of films that came out in the early 90s that was a very specific slice of life, you know, coming-of-age melodrama that where that was enough. It was just a good, solid picture. And the fact that it's, you know, frankly, almost entirely from the female point of view is the kind of thing that shouldn't still be groundbreaking 30 years later, but here we are. Um you know, it, it is exactly what you expect it to be, but I thought it was well made. I enjoyed it, and I would recommend it as a one-time watch. Yeah. Uh, Aaron? Did you mention J. Cameron Smith, who's Jerry on Succession? She's the mom in this movie as well? She's like, Yeah, she's in mom. here, yeah. Uh, did yeah. I, I, did, I, I might not have hit her name in the credits, but yeah. Yeah. 
as I saw her name in the credits, I'm like, oh yeah, there she is. And it's 30 years earlier. She's like, oh, okay. Um, I uh, and also this is directed by what's his name? What's the director's name? Craig Bulletin? Yep. One? Yes. I inadvertent so I <laughs> so random. I have stars currently because I wanted to watch the final season. They're the new season of Party Down, and now I have stars for like a month. But I put on I put a few films on the list I hadn't seen before, including a film called Light It Up with Usher among other. Oh, people. I had that that's soundtrack. Di- <laughs> that's directed by Craig Bolton, which yeah. I I didn't know of. I inadvertently watched another Craig Bolton film <laughs> this week on the same week we're talking about this movie. Um, I agree with Scott with everything he's saying here. I don't think it's necessarily doing you know it's not making a new wheel or anything it's just a solid coming of age comedy drama more heavy on the drama uh good acting is what elevates it especially from lewis and dushku and like some of the other smaller performances think they're well enough it's always neat seeing see thomas howell balance between being like he's that goofy kid or he's the serious straight male you know lace lead um yeah i mean there's it's nice that it's neat that a movie like this came out the same year as like the Sandlot because you have two like different sides as far as gender based coming of age stories. Um, I would argue this is better than something like Now and Then, which I think relies a little bit too much on the gimmick of hey, it's them before and then after. Where this is just it's what you get, like it's exactly what it is, and doesn't try to like do anything more than what it's going for. But this movie was clearly much smaller because it has. You know, lesser known actors compared to many of the major female movie stars of the 90s and all in one movie. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, I do think that there's perhaps some subtext going on as far as Dushku's obs- somewhat obsession with, uh, with uh, Lewis's character and like that relationship that I found to be interesting, but it's not really explored all in all that meaningful way because it's just, I don't know what the, cause it's based on a book. I don't know if the book has more going on in it or what have you, or if the movie itself is not trying to necessarily do anything, but it does feel like there's something that would probably be explored more today. If the movie was made now compared to then, but like regardless. it could be incidental it's there, but it, it could be for sure that they're like, Oh, but as it stands. Yeah. I, the fact that it's, like it's doing all the things it needs to do without being anything really special. So yeah, it doesn't necessarily hit me as like, Oh, people should watch this all the time. Or there's one that you really got to, you know, put on over and over again because of what it's trying to say. But as a movie that you watch, you're like, yeah, that's a nice version of this kind of story. Yeah. It does the job. Yeah. I, I'm, I was, I was surprised uh, by this movie. I, I thought it was just going to be, you know, homework uh, for one of them. And I found myself, uh, slowly more engaged as it as it went on. I, I don't think this isn't some like hidden gem or like, oh my gosh, you guys, we made a huge discovery here. But it's one that I think deserves some sort of recognition because it's quite good. It's it falls into that thing we had, you know, right now and for the last I don't know how many years almost decade we've been going through this like 80s nostalgia bit with all our TV and movies, but back in the 90s, we were hitting the for the I don't know what boomer nostalgia of like the 50s and some of the 60s. And this is one of those films that is there with it, but is doing something with it. I felt like it's it's got to read, it's got something to say, it's got the um sexual promiscuity that it's looking into. Um, there's the, the differences of like becoming your own like man or woman through this and you know being okay with like sexuality and stuff throughout this uh story is what it's wanting to do like i feel like it it's got something more to say than just like oh look we're we're in those the good old days is that they'll they'll tell you um 
it's, it's fair, like I'm it's, coming up this thing just right around the same time I've seen Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, mm-hmm. which is a better film than this movie, but they have interesting similarities as far as how focused they are on specific characters and the fact that, like you just said, they are trying to do more than just one thing, which right. I do think is valuable for this kind of story. Yeah, it's not trying to... This is trying to focus on things that, uh, in hindsight, you know were there that weren't attacked head-on quite frequently during the era and then a lot of nostalgia things will not touch upon or happily or nicely hit on with this um i i like i think this is a really terrific role for juliette lewis as she sort of gets uh typecast or pigeonholed into these roles that are like like uh like wild idiot well idiot hit girl type thing or like not too bright she's like really smart but this one kind of has that um in a more naive fashion where like you know she's smart but she's just young kind of thing uh whereas normally it's you know like she's just it's literally weeks from now we're gonna we'll see her later (laughs) yeah we'll see her later this summer in a role that she gets cast in all the time through this um and she's good at she's very good at but like she's better than that and that's kind of what they would put her towards when she was she i mean people don't remember but she was an it girl for this time like it was cape was, fear put her on the map yeah fear, like she had been uh she had a cape fear started in what lampoon's christmas vacation yeah that is a big that was a one of her early big ones but then through Did this she get an oscar nomination for cape fear or am cape I fear, yeah i believe so. yeah 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 so she was um She'd be quite big, um, but you no. Know, this movie's a you know ni- nice little thing. It it gets the things right. It's it's uh, nostalgia in a more lived in fashion than a flashier one, uh, which is kind of nice. Which probably comes from a lower budget, which yes can help. Uh, but yeah, I I found myself liking this movie, uh, not and not in a oh my gosh like quite a bit, but it's just like yeah, that was nice. Like if yeah, you're perusing through and it's there on a board night streaming. You're not going to have a bad time. It, it's in the realm of movies we've seen this year or this for this series that I've never heard of before. And we're like, not necessarily a delightful surprise, but like, hey, decided on this planet on the good side, as opposed to, mm-hmm. you know, some of those other ones we talked about. This right. At least one other yeah. one we'll be talking about later today. Yeah. Uh, I've heard of all the films we're talking about today. Don't oh, yeah, I had heard it. You know, this one. Never forced myself to watch it. I'm talking about the fugitive, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So no, I, I, yeah, I, I definitely. This is a pleasant movie. Um, I, I like it's like three star movie, but you know, does its job. Does its job. It was in a hindsight interesting, and you know, it's the movie is the movie, and this makes total sense. But you have the Dushku character who, in the beginning, is sort of thinking, basically, when will I be, you know lusted after by boys and i'm thinking good god in five years you have no idea you're going to join jennifer uh, love hewitt as the definitive teenage dream of that generation and in some ways it's not great <laughs> right. um, yeah i mean she had what she'd have true lies right here around the corner yes and yeah. then wind up on buffy yeah, yeah, and that was, of course, the one that put made her a, a temporary icon of sorts. Then on, where she would apparently get uh, fan mail from Death Row Prisoners. No, among other things. Oh. Um, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. But yeah, you suck. Uh, 
Uh, that, that she, also, she also starred in Wrong Turn in 2003. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it also was basically the first of sort of the new wave of 2000 era grindhouse horror pictures. Mm-hmm. In that, you know, even when it came out, I was like, oh, we haven't had one of these in a long time, which, you know, the film earns its R rating. It's not insane, but it does harken back to the last house on the left, Hills Have Eyes, Texas Chainsaw style grindhouse. And it sort of opened the door for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Saw and Hostel and everything that would follow. Yeah, that's that's very true. When people were like, what is this? And then, yeah, they were first. But yeah, no, uh, that night doesn't have any like fancy release of any type, uh, but it is on and it's not on streaming. It's on YouTube just sitting there in good quality, too. So MWD will pick it up sooner or later. (laughs) There we go. Yeah. MWD drama department. Yeah. First, we gave you Rain Man. Now we're giving you. Or, or, or when Kino releases their four-pack C. Thomas Howell collection. Oh, I will, I will say, speaking of update, Scott, mm-hmm. do you remember the uh, the Death Wish movie with uh, Tom Skerritt that we watched in the summer of 82, the hardest movie we had to find for it? Uh, I yes, to- I have vague recollections of that. Uh, Arrow Video is putting it out on Blu-ray this year. Oh, thank so God. It's probably already out by now. But, like, I mean- yeah, I was like, oh, wow. I already saw that to know I don't need to pick that up. <laughs> I hope that segment from this show is a part of the extras. It should be like, well, I was listening to that show. I was like, who has the rights to that? Oh. Uh, nobody. Only on VHS in the UK. What? Which of, of course, all, we all watch the v- VHS copy legally. <clears throat> Film historians, Brandon Peters and Scott Mendelson talk. <laughs> there we go. They're, they're, here's their 10 minutes from the summer of 82 at 40 series. Yeah. But yeah. So, yeah, so I guess that's all three of us saying that night was all right. Solid. All right. All right, so we will move on now to the TV ratings for this week. Next, I've got 500 watts running through this bad boy. Oh, that's wonderful, Tim. Turn it down. Stuck. Home improvement coming up next. Then, it's the big one. Talking about a breast reduction. Great, huh? They were supposed to make them smile! Roseanne and a special night tonight. This is better. Uh, Nielsen, it's another news-heavy week, but... uh, First place, CBS is there with 60 Minutes, 2020 on ABC, behind it at number two. Also from ABC, Home Improvement, number three. Number four, Dateline on NBC. Number five, Primetime Live on ABC. And number six, Seinfeld on NBC. Number seven, 48 Hours, CBS. Number eight, Murder, She Wrote on CBS Now. In ninth place, we have another one of those dang ties uh, the first on CBS, we have a movie, a 1992 TV movie. So it's a rerun called Nightmare in the Daylight, which is about I've actually heard of a married Wisconsin teacher fears a Los Angeles lawyer who has mistaken her for his long lost wife, starring Christopher Reeve, hey. Jacqueline Smith. Yeah, that's that's who's in this one. Um Scott has seen it. So, Scott, give us your review. Oh, I don't know if I've actually seen it. I just, I'm, <laughs> I'm aware of it when it first airs. Like, oh, this is an against type role for Chris. Oh, my gosh. So it's directed by Lou Antonio, Lou Antonio who uh-huh. was on Star Trek. 
who was remember the one with Frank Gorshin where they had it was the big racial one where people had like a white oh, side yeah. of the face and black side of the face. He was the he was the guy that wasn't Frank Gorshin. Speaking of Frank Gorshin, but that's later. That is later. Um, <laughs> like a lot of these date, you know, TV movies that we come up upon in the ratings. Uh, this one's available for free on YouTube right now. Awesome. If you're right. doing TV movies. Oh my god. So the, it tied itself. This one ties itself with a uh, another TV movie. Uh this one is a rerun of a 1990 TV movie called Rich Men Single Women. It's about three women plot to catch wealthy husbands by throwing a party at a mansion to which they have temporary access. Obvious love stories follow involving an ex-ball player, a secretly wealthy mechanic, and an ad exec starring. This is an all-star cast. Suzanne Summers, Heather Locklear, Deborah Adair, and John Allen Nelson are in this. James Karen is in it. This is Atlanta King. This is a big, big movie. Bonus episode, guys, right? No. <laughs> no. Uh, directed by Elliot Silverstein. He of Cat Baloo. Cat Baloo. In the and car. In the car. Wow. <laughs> this is awesome. A lot of Tales from the Crypt episodes, too. Man Called Horse. Oh, gosh. Picket Fences. Aaron's show. He did one episode. So, yeah. Uh, he did The Happening before M. Night did it. And back, he did it back in 67. Maybe better. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, uh, those, if you know, those three girls, um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I'm just going to jump into now. My boyfriend's back. I was going to try to spin something to piss Scott <laughs> off, but you know what? It was going to take too long. So, my boyfriend's back. Originally called Johnny Zombie, which would have been a better title. They say you only get one chance at life. But for childhood sweethearts, Missy and Johnny, true love will never die. He came back from the dead for me. He's a stinking zombie, you idiot. He may be dead. Right. But his heart still beats for the girl that he loves. I would love to go to the prom with you. Go for it, Johnny! Pretty damned active for a dead guy. My Boyfriend's Back, rated PG-13. Now playing at a theater near you. Uh, Directed... By Bob Balaban. That Bob Balaban? That Bob Balaban. That Bob Balaban. You didn't know this? My <laughs> God. He the movie. He won the role. He won it over Adam Marcus, who would go on to direct Jason Goes to Hell coming up here on December 93 at 30. Oh, what if Bob Balaban directed Jason Goes to Hell, though? He was inexperienced. <laughs> I would I would love that switcher. Let's see that switch. That's what I'm so, saying. Sh- Sean Cunningham wanted... Adam Marcus coming straight out of film school, but the money people were like, uh-uh. And they're Bob like, Balaban's your guy. You're doing, you're, you're taking Balaban. He <laughs> like parents. You see Balaban? So, uh, uh, this is written by Dean Laurie and starring Andrew Lowry, Tracy Lind, Danny Zorn, Edward Herman, Mary Beth Hurt, Matthew Fox, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Paul Dooley, Matthew McConaughey's in a scene, and Cloris Leachman is also here about a teenage boy who comes back from the dead because he is determined to win the most beautiful girl in school. All right, so like it's called My Boyfriend's Back, but he's not her boyfriend. No. In nor the movie. The, nor is the song in the movie. Exactly. It is not. So why is 
why is this not this reminds me of a movie from like 12 years or what take me home tonight which that's a big failure if your movie is named after a song and you can't secure the rights and play it in your movie go with johnny zombie like what are you doing like i was like they did can't buy me love twice and they didn't buy your love like (laughs) (laughs) it's yeah so the title's misleading and they don't have the di- uh, twice in two ways. The title is misleading because you're like, I'm going to hear that song. I'm going to hear a cover of that song. Nope. Nope. You, uh, he's not even her boyfriend. Matthew Fox is her boyfriend. What? He's not back. Like if you went by the title, it'd be like when Matthew Fox shows up at the locker every time. It's like, oh, my boyfriend's back. That's not it. So, uh, all right. So, Aaron, you had seen this before, right? Uh, yeah, um, I saw this when I was very young. Uh, it was just randomly on TV. I saw, I jumped in, I didn't see like the whole thing. I jumped into it and saw like enough to get like the basic idea of what was going on. And then it got to the scene where like dudes falling apart and his penis falls off, like down his leg. But you, you know, you just see like a image of like something falling down mm-hmm. his leg. And I was like, this sucks. I'm out. <laughs> um, so now I've seen this, uh, in full. Um, for the like first time as far as watching the entire movie and uh this sucks i'm out um this is um this is a garbage film <laughs> i um uh, i can understand why this kind of movie would get like a cult audience which i'm sure it probably has in some circles i am not part of that cult i do not like this movie at all i get what they're going for but i feel like every way that you could do this as far as making it tongue in cheek and you know a comedy and like lessen the impact of the fact that this kid's a zombie and whatnot i think every decision they made to make this a lighthearted romantic comedy was executed in the worst way possible (laughs) um i i don't think the comedy is effective whatsoever i don't like the tone of this movie i don't think the way the actors are playing it really gets what they're going for at least based on the direction versus the acting like clearly there's some kind of idea of what they want to do with the script or what have you but it just did not come together for me whatsoever i the main issue i have is i don't like the main guy whose name is what johnny dingle jesus christ that's a great Uh, name i i don't like him his performance in this role and so that's you know the movie <laughs> so i'm not on board of this guy who's mm-hmm. played by an actor what's david Lowry? was it was it was it andrew, andrew lowry andrew andrew lowry who has no real i mean has some credits but it's not like he you know it's not like this took him anywhere i i can see why because it's just not there's not there's no nothing to like we talked about c thomas hell we could have fun joking about C. Thomas Howell, but the guy has a career. Like this guy's mm-hmm. got nothing. Like it just didn't do anything. Well, and he's not bad in things. Like I, I, I joke, but I always think yeah, see, scrubs, I like C. Thomas Scrubs Howell. with yeah, Thomas Howell. No, yeah, but, there's yeah. there's some there, there's some outsiders. There's some solid stuff of C. Thomas Howell. Hitch, Hitcher, yeah. It's just, you know, you throw you throw a soulmate in there, it really gums up the works. Let me tell you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <I know. laughs> uh, but no, this movie is just bad. I I don't care for it. I've seen zombie comedies. By the way, Big Zombie Summer. Weekend of Bernie's 2 also. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I've seen zombie comedies. <laughs> um, Is that, this better than that? 
I mean, I gave them both ones, so we'll see. I'm making. I've I've been making a private letterbox list, ranking all of these movies. Oh, so great, at the end great. of this, I'll think I'll I'll put some real thought into where I'm putting these. Uh, but that might. I think that's better because I like Andrew McCarthy and um, Jonathan Silverstone more than yeah. This. But regard, no, I just. What I was gonna say is, I, I there's other zombie comedies that have this sort of like 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 Fido, for example, is one that I think of that I think is more successful. At what this is trying to do, as far as treating it with a level of sincerity, that's like that has this like interesting like satirical edge to it. Like this just doesn't work. I just I wasn't a fan. I don't like it. I don't care for. How I mean, do. I'm not the biggest Warm Bodies fan, but that movie is Dawn of the Dead compared to this. Like, oh, warm, I like Warm Bodies. I like. I will fight for Warm Bodies. I, I think that movie. I think that movie's internal logic makes a lot more sense than what this mm-hmm. movie's doing. So. Gotcha. Uh yeah. So. I I have to say this was a blind spot for me and I would it was always there like I remember the VHS cover with the girl standing over the tombstone I'm like I should check that out sometime I never did I never did and then I used to sometimes I'd go to Fry's to buy my Blu-rays a new release Tuesday or something like that because they would carry weird they carry like the Shout Factory they carry you know your uh, your boutique label stuff and sometimes they'd have good prices and they always said I think Mill Creek had this out or somebody and it was always like 2.99 there like $2.99 and I always thought should I just pick this up should I just pick this up and then like I never did like it was just too much to add that $3 on sometimes like another time another time another time and then I and then I never got it and then it went out of print and it went from astronomical prices so I never bought it Kino I believe has re-released it I didn't I didn't watch it there I watched it on Hoopla and I'm I'm glad I'd never spent the two dollars and ninety nine <laughs> on my boyfriend's back. Like you said, Aaron, I can see cult appeal for this. I don't I don't join that cult. Uh, I thought the doctor in this was funny. I yeah. like yes, him. Austin Pendleton. Yes, yeah. I yes, thought, he's I the liked, one bright spot. I liked whenever they visited him and what he would do, and the line, his lines were good. Like it was good. To, like this is the movie I want to, I want to hang out with, not this because this guy tries to tell us about like being in love with this girl and all this stuff, and he's he's like, I don't get anything from him other than she's hot, like, and he's. That he has no other reason to love her than like different than Matthew Fox, who's like the jerk, but like it, very uncharacteristic of Matthew Fox. Yeah, it, yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> it comes across like anyone else who might be in love with her and like or enamored with her, and we don't see it in a unique way other than like he's not a jock and he's our main character and he lived by her. Like that's yeah, she's presented as an item. That's very. It's much not it. like she's a prize to be won. Yeah, it's not like Spider Man and MJ and in, in Sam Raimi's where like he sees more to her than everybody else, and you kind of get the idea and the way he talks to her, not just like oh, she's hot. And we see more too. And we is... see more too. Yeah, and this this girl is kind of mean, and like we we don't see what he's seeing in her that <laughs> other people don't like. It's a real mess. As it's just like she's hot. Like and he's and he's not he's not the popular kid, but we want like, yeah I, I don't mm, it's it's wild like can't hardly wait that movie handles this kind of shit well this is and it feels like uh, the answer to how poorly it's handled here. Um, I you didn't like talk about the zombie factor of this movie. <laughs> yeah, there is a zombie. Yeah, he's a zombie. He gets shot. He goes he, like 
and he's like falling apart. I, I like how he's not going to last. And then it, I think it like goes up to like, I'm guessing what's heaven. And it's, it's all weird. Like Philip Seymour Hoffman's neat seeing him here. And like, Phil, Phil, big Philly Hoffman. And it, but Daryl downgrade because it's coming after Scent of a Woman, where he's like, "Oh Jesus, fourth yeah, build," yeah. and now he's here <laughs> like the eighth bleed bully. <laughs> well, and it's like it's funny because like McConaughey's in here, Renee Zellweger was cut from it, so I'm like, "Oh, this was shot in Texas, wasn't it?" Like, yeah, I'm real. Like I, I didn't, you didn't have to tell me. Um, <laughs> well, that when when I see Paul Dooley, I'm like, "Up oh, Texas, Texas, yeah." <laughs> So, uh, yeah, this was a trudge. This is not a long movie, but it felt really, 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 really long. Like, really long. And I, yeah, it's, oh, this guy, he's like, he's trying to set up a scenario. His girlfriend works at a gas station, or that girlfriend, because that would mean he's the boyfriend of my boyfriend's back. He's He's a, he's a entitled stalker, let's be honest. Yeah, entitled stalker. And he's like, come in there, like, hey, go in there and act like you're fucking robbing the place, and I'm going (laughs) to save you. Like. That's not cool, man, because her That's life and, and then he gets what's coming to him. But then we have to feel sympathy and he comes back and we have to spend another like hour and 15. Like, yeah, this movie's bad. Scott. Wait, That's wait, fucking terrible. Yeah. Well, yeah, it is fucking terrible. It's, it's one of those movies, once again, where it has the best friend who has like curly hair, probably Jewish. <laughs> which just always amuses me. <laughs> and, um, and they're like, oh, our people are in this. What are we doing? Oh, he's just like one of those guys. But he looks like he's 40 and everyone's yeah, high school. I, well, no, he looks like the guy in Batman that's at the beginning. Uh, one of the, the hobo robber guys. Not not okay. the shut the fuck up. Shut Johnny Gob. Not that guy. The other guy. The guy that's okay. all worried about the slightly Batman. sympathetic one. Yeah. Yeah. He looked like him. I was yeah. like, wait, um, that is not him. It was not him. Yeah, uh, this may be the worst movie of the summer so far. <laughs> oh, oh, House um, of Cards. House of Cards. House of Cards. Oh, I will, look, of look, cards I will defend take. House of Cards that doesn't die before take. standing right. up for this shit. If Tommy Lee Jones did this movie, you're right. It would have been better. <laughs> um, Tommy Lee Summer. I mean, first of all, it's just badly acted, badly staged, badly written, awkwardly structured, not particularly funny. Um, it is one of those films that deigns to take place in the real world, but nobody has a real human reaction to anything that occurs on screen. Um, you know, it's played for laughs that these parents are grieving their dead son. And then he comes back like, Oh, well, welcome back. Carry on. Um, the, the, you know, it tries to pull a Frankenstein at the last minute to no good cause. Um, but, Without getting too navel gazy, this is the kind of when people bitch and moan about how you know Disney fairy tale princesses and movies of that nature, romantic comedies give girls an unhealthy opinion about XYZ and romance. This is the kind of shit that does it on the other side of the coin because he's an entitled dick who likes this girl because he thought she was pretty when she was when he was six. And the entire film is us rooting for him to win her over for despite not being charming, not being funny, not being nice. Um, and she has another nothing to offer other than being a stereotypical teen pinup, and that's not the actress's fault. There's no development to speak of. Because the film was you know spent so much time on the zombie stuff, there's no time to develop any of the characters. Um, the only entertainment value is just because of the stack cast. And yes, you know, again, Austin Pendleton, an actor that I like in basically everything, and just by sheer force of charisma, he is entertaining in his scenes. Um, 
but the film itself is terrible and frankly a little immoral again i don't want to get too navel gazy but it's the kind of shitty shitty piece of crap male entitlement fantasy that is as bad for young men as the worst kind of quote-unquote female-centric princess story you could possibly imagine um i'm so happy not that we dislike the movie but like that i don't have to like get angry at the fact that somebody's trying to defend this because <laughs> this movie's terrible it's, it's really like oh yeah i was stunned i was like this could be like a bad movie but cheesy funny like or a, a, like kind of adorable it's not not at all I mean, like, you guys are talking about there's you know a, a theoretical cult following of this and a unfortunately i've never seen it and b it's indefensible that there would be. I mean, look, I know I was a dick about Super Mario Brothers a couple months ago. And while I stand by everything I say, I can certainly understand why some people either enjoy it or don't think it's that bad. This has got nothing. There's no, it's not quotable at all. No, there is nothing to this picture that can be recommended other than I'm glad J.O. Sanders got paid. Huh. Yeah, I. Mm. My boyfriend is oh back back to hell with him. Oh God. But yeah, I, I think we've we've stamped hard on this one. <laughs> it's already dead. It's already really? dead. We can go back to talking about Mario. We got really passionate about that one. <laughs> Especially since it turned out to be better yeah. than people <laughs> <laughs> I don't like, care how many billions of dollars it makes. I still know which one I prefer. Like we were, we were, uh, we were, we were nicer to Hocus Pocus than that. We don't need to relitigate these. <laughs> no, I'm just saying. All right, so uh, we will hit up the Casey Case of Top Forty, the top ten of which. Casey's biggest uh, now, as well, we got to shake up in the bottom half, but the top half remains the same with. Uh, UB40 holding on with Can't Help Falling in Love from Sliver, one of our another classic summer movie we loved. Number two is Whoop, there it is by Tag Team. Number three, Week by SWV. Number four, I'm going to be 500 Miles by The Proclaimers. Number five, Slam, dot dot up by Onyx. Uh, number six. Moving up a spot is Lately by Jodeci. Number seven, joining the top ten, j- jumping from 11 to seven, is If I Had No Loot by Tony, Tony, Tony. That's how you say it. All right. Uh, I when they were Tony, 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 Tony. Tony? Tony! Uh, number, number eight, That's the Way Love Goes by Janet Jackson, sliding down. Uh, number nine, Show Me Love by Robin S., and number 10, joining the top 10, I Don't Want to Fight, Tina Turner. Oh. A movie and a song in this summer. So, doing double duty. I don't need no wrong or right. I just really won't. Don't really. Oh, fuck it. I forgot the lyrics. Can All right. All right. So, Tina did double duty. And, Thought uh, I knew. Uh, our next uh, person did double duty here on The Meteor Man. I 
Robert Townsend, The Meteor Man, rated PG, starts Friday, August 6th at theaters everywhere. As it is directed and written by Robert Townsend, Triple Duty, because he's starring in it as well with Marla Gibbs, Eddie Griffin, James Earl Jones, Robert uh, Guillaume. Is that what do we say? You're about there, yeah. Yum. Uh, Don Cheadle, Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby guy. As a mute character, so it's okay. Yellow, <laughs> <laughs> mm, uh, big. What Daddy. happened to that guy? He was big for a while. Yeah, like Big Daddy Kane, Big Daddy Summer years back. Summer back. Uh, Frank Gorshin, Sinbad, Luther Vandross, Nancy Wilson, Tiny Lister, Chris Tucker, Naughty by Nature, Cypress Hill, Bismarcky, and Wallace Shawn. Yeah. I, I kind of like I like this dichotomy of Frank Gorsh and Wallace Shawn together. Uh, a high school teacher from a troubled inner city Washington, D.C. neighborhood becomes a super powered hero and takes on the gang that has been terrorizing his streets. First off, this is not the first time I've talked about the meteor man on this show. A couple years ago, did an episode with the wonderful Sheree Bohannon. Uh, she who is a playwright and director and also uh, host of the Nightmare on Fear Street podcast. You can go listen to that for a full almost hour discussion, which was incredible about this movie. Apologies if I rehash, but you know what? It's been a while. So let's talk to Meteor Man Aaron. Um, it's interesting. Here, here's an example. Like a couple, a couple years ago, Summer of Soul came out. That was my favorite movie that year. And there's a sequence in that film where the the people at that concert they talk about the uh, the moon landing because it happened this around this during the time that there was this whole concert. And given who we were talking to, it's people, it's you know, it's black people in Harlem that are like, "Oh, we landed on the moon, but how about we deal with stuff down here?" Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. I I had not I I seen like protests about the moon and stuff like that as far as like spending money, but like thinking of that scenario i hadn't seen like news footage of people like how giving those kind of interviews i think of that and i think of something like a superhero movie featuring black characters written by a black actor black director and what's so interesting to me is like we get a lot of superhero movies especially now obviously and the stakes depending on who they're coming from tend to be so globally based or you know the universe is in jeopardy or what have you but you look at like black panther and the second Marvel gets this like Oscar recognition, it's because it's the it's the one movie in that franchise that like deals less with what Thanos is up to and more with black people are suffering and we need to do something mm-hmm. about that. That's not the only thing going on with Black Panther, obviously, but that's a huge part of it. Meteor Man is a movie that is imperfect. It has problems with its humor, even though it's a comedy. I get that. It has a limited budget, so it can only do so much with what it's trying to accomplish. And yet... Robert Townsend, I think, is very smart in what he's trying to accomplish here because you have superhero movies coming out in the 90s. You have the, you know, you, you have the, it's the retro crowd with the shadow and the phantom, what have you, but still, you know, superhero movies. And those ones are dealing with pretty generic, like, adventure stakes, right? There's a guy who wants to do something, take over the world, whatever. Here's a movie where it's about a black character living in Washington, D.C. And the second you put that kind of cast 
together for a movie like this, you get a film that's dealing with real world issues that are actually mm-hmm. happening at that time that are that are important that have that have a lot of relevance that mean something. And that's clear what Townsend's trying to do here. He's making a film that's dressed up in the superhero thing and it's lighthearted or what have you, but it's also dealing with gang violence and drugs and people on the street that like have serious issues going on. And the idea that we have a moderately budgeted superhero movie that's very much trying to resemble Superman the movie, like Donner Superman, but do it in the realm of what if Robert Townsend got a bunch of like, you know, black actors together and made this whole thing. I really appreciate what that movie is. I wish it was better. I think two thirds of it are strong enough. I think the final third is just kind of, oh, we got to end this somehow. Let's have a big action finale. But there's so much, I think, consideration for why would Meteor Man need to exist that makes me like this movie? Like, I, you know, I don't know what a higher budgeted version of this movie looks like. I don't know if that makes it suddenly better. But in terms of the people he got to be in this movie and the movie he wrote, I very much appreciate that it exists. So that's that's where I am with Meteor Man. Yeah, uh, I've no. It would only op- it only play two weekends before it was gone from theaters, which is kind of crazy. Uh, Scott, uh, I've always liked this picture. I saw it not in theaters, but pretty soon after it jumped onto a cable, whether it's HBO or Showtime or whatever. And yeah, I mean, it was a revelation for exactly the reason you said it was a small stake street level superhero film where the characters were dealing with real world problems as opposed to stopping a descendant of Genghis Khan from building a nuclear bomb <laughs> or whatever the fuck Treat Williams was doing in the Phantom. <gasps> you wanted to I, mash treasure together to make a beam? Yes, as one does. <laughs> um, again, I love that film. I think he's terrific, but again, what, what, you know, basically his end game is, oh, I've got the power. I have, I have both of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, at least Big Boy Caprice just wants to control its crime syndicates. Um, right. yeah. Oh, yeah. And this was sort of the start of a mini trend in the mid 90s where you had these comparatively smaller scale minority led superhero pictures whether it was relatively speaking steel mask of zorro black mask um blank man blank man thank you and they were all more or less dealing with real world and often racially motivated villainy um and i don't think i'm not gonna sit here and say that steel is a good movie actually but it does feel like a rough draft of the first Iron Man. And actually, in some ways, it's more poignant and morally consistent in terms of the former arms guy that realizes the error of his ways and tries to keep his weapons out of the hands of bad guys. It's a good um, comedy, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, we know Jack's hilarious on camera. Um, in scripted films. So, yeah, and, you know, I, I, I remember I, I whined about this when Black Panther came out five years ago. It was like, this is where the superhero genre was before Spider-Man and X-Men turned it into an A-level subgenre. And then Hollywood was like, oh, you can't have that anymore. We're giving it to Ben Affleck or Nicolas Cage or Robert Downey Jr. or guys named Chris. And what really sucks is that now that the genre is on the decline again, comparatively speaking. Now we're seeing superheroes that aren't just white guys named Chris, you know, the Shang-Chi, Captain Marvel, um, another blade, allegedly. Um, and, you know, it's, 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 they're almost being set up to fail in that sense that, that, that Marvel and DC 
almost intentionally or not, they waited until the French, the, the, the genre had peaked before really truly diversifying itself. Um, whether that was intentional, I don't know, but it certainly is what's happening. Um, but back to Meteor Man, yeah, I mean, I, I do have issues with it as a, a narrative. It's sort of weird that the climax comes down to who has the most guns, but whatever. <laughs> I mean, you know, again, you know, as a white guy, I can say, eh, I don't care about that because that's not my, you know, that's not my moral argument to make one way or another. Um, but it is moving and and thoughtful in a way that. You know, even some of the the comic book movies of that era that I like were not. I mean, I love Batman Forever, but there's nothing there in terms of politics or social relevance, and it's not trying to be. Because it's a little this was crazy as far as the streaming stuff goes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I don't think that was intentional. I think that was just thirty years later. You know, reality got so bad that it, it caught up with fantasy. Um, but because again, this was a time when when people wanted, you know culturally topically politically nurturing pictures they didn't go to see the big fantasy action picture you know they went to see you know quote-unquote regular movie Mm -hmm. and i think by virtue of meteor man being a small budget picture it kind of toes the line between the two Mm -hmm. um and yeah the cast is just bangers jesus oh my god oh yeah um and so yeah i mean being like goofy yeah, yeah, exactly. I love a goofy James Earl Jones. <laughs> yeah, that's why. That's the that's the reason I like uh, uh, the sad lot. I mean, I can give or take the boys melodrama. I think that stuff's fine, but the stuff at the end when James Earl Jones is what makes it awesome. Um, and Dennis Leary being a father who isn't really a dick. Yeah, that's that's a whole other episode. But <laughs> yeah, amazing Spider Man's Dennis Leary. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> yes. over this, <laughs> Judgment Night's Dennis Leary. Um. So, yeah, I mean, it, it sort of kickstarted this mini trend of socially conscious, socially aware superhero movies. It was a TV pilot, a two part pilot that became a series. Um, and that was the same thing where you had this this black intellectual who had been struck down by a sniper's bullet during a riot that uses his technology to you know, basically protect his own people from systematic injustice. And. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I'm not going to say it's a great movie, but it's a hell of a thing to watch then and now. Yeah, I, I like, I like this movie quite a bit. Um, it's, and I'd echo things that I noticed before, uh, when I talked about the other, uh, episode that, yeah, this, the stakes here are great because they keep it very much Jefferson Reed's world. Like that's what he would want to protect. He would think, locally before acting globally i guess uh is what you would do and it, it feels heavier and it, and and means a lot more than just some maniacal man trying to blow something up or take over the world at this point and it's kind of the person he is like he doesn't have to like take the huge responsibility he wants to be responsible for his neighborhood because he kind of was already caring about that to begin with um and yeah it's a huge cast, having a ball, um, and it's fun. It kind of has some tonally weird thing. Like when he gets struck by the meteor, it's horrific it's looking. Graphic. It yeah. is gra- like really good makeup that. effects and yeah. everything else. And it's like that's kind of tonally off from the fun they want to have. Some of the the 
I, I do like like the the gangster stuff with the kids and somebody shows up. It's kind of funny. Um, I like Eddie Griffin here uh, in his yeah. as his friend, and when he tries to like be the meteor man and stuff, it's kind of funny. Like I always think Eddie. I was there at Foolish opening week because <laughs> I think Eddie Griffin's a funny dude. Eddie Griffin's a funny guy. Uh, he's okay. a funny guy. Like he, yeah. you know. Um, you mentioned you mentioned Chris Tucker in here. I like it because mm-hmm. he has three lines, yep. and I think one of them is a loop. Um, but I just <laughs> want to show that this this thing is. Tons of people. Michael Jackson made a song for this movie. Yeah, like, he, he he's all over this summer with like a free summer Williams. of Jackson. Yeah, Jackson and Janet too. Like they're all over the. They're dominating summer of Jacksons. Um. Yeah, and then you also have the uh, you Not know Tito. Yeah, you get the the classic uh, live long enough to see yourself become the enemy kind of storyline with this as well. Uh, and you know, um, there's the scene where they all stand for him like when he comes out without costume and stuff and gets beat like I love that scene where all the people come uh and come with him and yeah it, it has all the tropes of the like secret identity superhero lore but it feels it feels fresh grounded and natural in here and like it doesn't feel like I've seen this a ton of times um cuz this movie I mean while it's a straight up comedy it plays like a straight superhero movie quite well too uh which is surprising. has the donner film in mind like very much yeah. oh yeah i haven't seen it in a while so watching it's like oh this one's really trying to be like the donner movie like that's that's the clear yeah and it's not based, I, based off anything of course um but the, the only movies at the time that would have been around like batman the superman movies ninja turtles and the rocketeer everything of, of the other things we talked about weren't quite around but and howard the duck obviously in howard of the course duck. i i watched howard. i watched blank man also in preparation for this mm-hmm. and seen that in a while either and that one's very much indebted to batman like that was mm-hmm. yeah. like that's that's there's, literal, there's a literal callback to the scene where penguin and batman returns comes out of the sewer with the baby like you saved it there's a shot exactly in that in, in blank <laughs> like i never noticed that uh, and <laughs> I, I was always shocked when I, when I first saw the film, again, same thing. I didn't see it in theaters, but I saw it soon after. Where in this gee whiz comedic superhero movie, you have a scene of just horrific violence that kicks it off. Where mm-hmm. a bunch of armed thugs walk into a political organization organizer's office and just machine gun the shit out of everybody. It's off screen, but you know what happens. <laughs> um, and because it's so real world plausible it's a much more brutal scene than any more on-screen fantastical violence that you'll see in any number of superhero movies. Um, uh, yeah, I, I Cheadle, Don Cheadle's good here too. Yeah. I, I like Cheadle's, him. I, Cheadle's always he, money. Always money, but yeah, it's just, it's fun to watch this just bounce and play and, and work so well together. Um, it was a poorly reviewed movie, but Ebert kind of liked it. Um, he was like two and a half, right? I, yeah, I and I talked about this on the last one. I'll bring it up again because I, I feel like this can fall in the case of the the critic field at the time being dominant, dominant like white straight male writers. To where some movies I don't know were correctly assessed, like this one may not have been. Back in the day, but I'm not saying that it just needs to be like five star, re- you know, review, like go back retroactively five stars. But I feel like there's a whole load of films that were not correctly assessed back in the day just because of the, the lack of diversity in the critic field. And I feel like this one definitely 
because this yeah. is a fi- fine little movie. It's, like, a, it's a mix of, yeah, the lack of diversity certainly plays a role, but there's also just a, we're so used to seeing it done this way that we don't see it this way, and mm-hmm. this way isn't necessarily bad, but because we don't see it all that often, that means we're going to judge it as, judge it harshly or judge it as if it's this other thing. Yeah. And it, it, that's a weird rubric to kind of go off of, but you can, it, it shows when it comes to specifically films that are made by <laughs> uh, non-white male directors. Like, that. That's right. that's more often than not movies that have become either cult classics or just like in their own sense like modern classics, just like movies that are well regarded now they, because they have a certain kind of aesthetic that just feels unfamiliar yeah the score of the day wasn't as high as it might have been today. right the like the key example i could think of as far as like a turning point area is like be kind rewind where that's such like a <laughs> it's such a unique type of film that's doing a very specific thing and has very specific kind of people working on it and it has mixed reviews and i can see exactly why as far as an old yeah. guard and a new guard being like like get where gondry is and all this weird stuff but like why is it, it, it it's that it's a weird like shit I, I really like that scene where he literally cleans up the streets. Like where he yeah. takes like, he just takes everything out. He blo- like I love the like the process it goes. That feels like a one of those work backwards from moments as far as ideas he had for making a superhero movie. Like, mm-hmm. What about a superhero that literally cleans up the streets? And he like takes everything off, blows everything out of there, makes rain happen, plants, and because it's meteors and radio like radioactive the plants, and then you get this huge garden instead. It's like that's a cool like and it, and it's done clearly on like this budget level. So yeah. it's like it's the most wild looking version of it is like that's what you would do. But it like it's stuff like that that does make this film resonate. Like I'm glad you guys like this movie. I like yeah. it too. I haven't seen it in a while. I'm happy I'm happy I own it now because of this podcast cuz yeah. I had an excuse to buy it until now and it's like good cuz I like this movie. I like seeing all these people together in a movie like this that feels like a let's put on a show type thing that Yeah, has a- yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's right from the jump too. And you know, for as low as budget as this thing, the effects hold up quite well. They they're quite effective. And I like Robert Townsend. I don't think I say this enough. Robert Townsend is a very talented man. Mm-hmm. I think he's so good. I he 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 certainly he's, he's had a great career. I have he should have nothing to like worry like. But it's like I always wish there like there's more of him in stuff. Oh yeah, he, he did. Plays, um, he can play a great straight man. He can play a good comedic character. Like whatever he wants to do. I think he has what he can do to make just make it all work. I believe he directed and starred in a couple episodes of Black Lightning on CW. Yeah, a couple of, that was, that's a nice touch there. He directed a few episodes and he became what he was like, like the he was like a superintendent or something, and he came in and kind of like said like, "Oh, Jefferson, like yeah. <laughs> that's good." But yeah, when he when I saw his name, I was like, "Oh, cool! He's continuing the superhero thing." Like, I feel like he likes superheroes. Yes. Like, oh, yeah. He directed I mean, a Disney Channel movie, I think, called like "Up, Up and Away," um, which had E for Entourage as the villain, I believe. <laughs> I hmm. like, like, I feel like he's always had this superhero thing in mind as far as what he wants. If he had a chance to bring something to that genre, he would. I mean, it was stating the obvious, but Black Lightning certainly shares a certain sensibility. Oh, certain sensibilities. Scary. Yeah. Uh, um. Gotcha. Although you know he did, he didn't become Black Lightning to clean up the streets. I became Black Lightning to kill Tobias Steele, kill my <laughs> father, which he says like eight thousand times in the first season. Oh yeah, Tobias Whale, whatever the hell his name. He's got to get him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, got it. Um. Anyway, yeah. So Meteor Man, always always a good time. Uh, and the solid recommend. Funny, 
funny stuff. So uh, also having some maybe funny stuff is this week's uh, Yancey's Tales from the Video Store. Uh, Yancey Birds will tell us again some more tales from said video stores. A friendship that went too far. You're a child. You're only 14. A fantasy. Your mother is rather a miserable woman, isn't she? That became too real. People die every day. A real-life crime that shocked a nation. Time Magazine calls Heavenly Creatures a suspenseful, thrilling film. Exhilarating. One of the year's best films. Academy Award nominee. Heavenly Creatures. Rated R. And I put, uh, that was when I saw Heavenly Creatures at the New Art during that time. And I proudly put a picture of my new crush, Kate Winslet, on the popcorn machine. From the LA Weekly, I cut out the picture of Kate Winslet and, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the name of the, uh, what's her co-star's name? She's also famous now. Uh, which movie was it? <laughs> Heavenly Creatures. Heavenly Cre- oh, 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 oh. Yeah, it's, not, it's not Beckinsale in that, is it? No, Kate Winslet, I'm uh, sorry. K- Kate Winslet and... Melanie uh, Linsky. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Yep. Yep. Anyway, I cut, I cut the picture out in black and white. Basically, there was a there was a defunct popcorn machine at Video Archives that at certain times you could get a popcorn when you got rented a got a rental, but then for a long time it was just sitting there a popcorn machine with nothing in it. And I put I put my middle mark was taping up my little mark was taping up the picture of Kate Winslet because I saw her before anybody else in that movie, and and I also put together the John Carpenter. Uh, Kurt Russell section, which is all the John Carpenter and Kurt Russell movies, which was one of the f- most enjoyable afternoons of my life was putting together. The- there you <laughs> go. Yeah. The John kind Car- easy because John Carpenter had like 10 movies, but Kurt Russell had like 40 Disney live action movies. Mm-hmm. So the section was just bam full. I even put together a sign that I, that I put together myself. That was like in the tradition of Mifune and Kurosawa, Redford and Pollock, uh, <laughs> here's Carpenter and Russell. And it was like, I, and it was in all their oh. movies. It was, it was it was a fun. And I just wanted to become a huge fan. So the labor of love. You were sharing it. I just discovered then, this. I think, I think Robert and Steve and I actually were at Vidiots, which was another sort of archives competitor. But that was in Santa Monica. Like I've been to that time. one. Yeah, it's, it's, right the, it's near the New Arts, right? Is that around yeah, the corner? We, or something it's, like? it's very close to there. And I had a friend who used to work there, but actually the guy who writes the screen movies now used to work at videos before i knew him okay but, but robert and and before robert or anyone knew him, but robert and steve and i were there one time and we built that section at videos and left little video archives did this oh okay that's cool <laughs> Which was fun. Uh, even though steve-o always said that he and tarantino and the other guys were the not ready for prime time the belushi and the chevy chase and mm-hmm. I was Chris and I was Chris Catan or somebody like <laughs> which is true. I was just there for a minute at the end and I sought yeah. it out as a sort of fame horror. All right. Now for our main attraction, the fugitive. We have a fugitive that's been on the run for 90 minutes. The chase is on. Go get him. Right Critics say the fugitive is full of suspense, thrills, fun. It's dynamite. A runaway hit that will leave you breathless. Harrison Ford is The Fugitive, rated PG 13. Now playing at a theater near you. Directed by Andrew Davis. Written by Jeb Stewart, David Toy, and Roy Huggins. Which is that David Toy of uh, Dark City, right? Yes. yes. We'll go on to do that. Wait, um, hold on. 
Yeah, he's a writer on The Fugitive. I. Well, no, no, he's a. He's a um, Wait, I don't. Is he Dark no, he's City? Not, no, he's not no, Dark No, it, uh, what's his name? David. David. Uh, David Goyer. David Goyer is on. On. Uh, David S. Goyer. He's on Dark City. This is Dark City. David Dwyer is the Chronicles of is the Riddick guy. Pitch Riddick. Black. He's Pitch Black. That's he's right. That's yeah. right. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. He's, he's Vin Diesel's best friend. Thank you. That's what it was. There we go. That guy. Uh, starring Harrison Ford, Tommy <laughs> Lee Jones, oh. Steel Award. Cobbs, Tommy Lee Jones? Yeah. A high-billed huh. Julianne Moore for a couple of scenes. <laughs> Joe <laughs> Pantoliano, uh, Pantoliano, Joy Pants, uh, Andrew Katsoulis, L. Scott Caldwell, Jane Lynch, Neil Flynn, and Daniel Roebuck. Uh, Dr. Richard Kimball, unjustly accused of murdering his wife, must find the real killer while being the target of a nationwide manhunt led by a seasoned U.S. Marshal. This, of course, is a updated remake movie version of the television show, the same name from the 60s, the golden era of television. Um, uh, this one... It comes from Andrew Davis, uh, director-wise. Uh, he started in the slasher realm uh, with Final Terror, which also had Joey Pants in it, so they have a long-standing relationship. Uh, has good action pedigree with uh, Code of Silence, Above the Law, Under Siege. And uh, after this, he'll do Chain Reaction, Perfect Murder, and Collateral Damage. So as you can see, The Fugitive is up here. Um, well, Andrew Davis, I mean, while Harrison Ford and Emily Jones are obviously excellent actors, Andrew Davis has a weird history of getting spectacular performances from action stars that usually aren't particularly great actors. Yeah, He got two great performances out of Steven Seagal. He got a good performance out of uh, Chuck Norris. And he's probably the, got the best performance out of Schwarzenegger that wasn't Ivan Reitman or James Cameron or uh, Paul Verhoeven. Yeah. Um and this collateral damage? Yeah. I mean, I, I if you look at how he grieves for his dead family in that That's movie fair. versus end of days, it's night and day. That's fair, because and it's been granted 21 years since I've seen that movie, but I, I can feel you on that one. <laughs> um, so this is another case too of Harrison Ford not being the first choice for a role and becoming iconic with it. Uh Alec Baldwin, Nick Nolte, Kevin Costner, Michael Douglas, all gone like Getting it, turning it down before him. Uh, then, huh? I can see Douglas in this pretty easily. But oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. funny. Pretty much all of those other picks, especially Douglas and Baldwin, you'd be going, well, maybe he did do it. Maybe yeah. he did kill his wife. Doug, but with Douglas Ford, you're like, no way in hell. Bald, yeah. Baldwin, you have to take some convincing. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, and then uh, for the Tommy Lee Jones role, uh, Gene Hackman and John Voight. Uh, like, you can see Hackman here. Easily, oh yeah, because they work together in the uh, the package, yeah, which is a great little yeah, with a great little thriller, by the way, yeah. So, um, I gotta, so I'm by uh, I saw this at the drive-in theater when I first saw it, as but I have to say this: while he'll never, I don't think he ever said it as such. You could just grab onto it, but this, I I'm pretty sure. If you and if you ask anybody, this is my father's favorite movie of all time, uh, and he always talked about. He saw this movie like three or four times at the theater, and he was not a like big. 
he liked going to movies, but he was a big movie guy. But uh, the I saw him. He took us to drive in. That was like his second or third time seeing it. He kept going like, and then when it was on TV, always watching it on TV. And he always tell us on the phone like, "Oh, Fugitive was on." Like he'd always talk about the Fugitive Beyond. So like this one, and like Christmas Vacation, he watched all the time. But he watched. He loved this movie. This the he always talked about. Like this is the most excited I'd seen him talk about a movie ever. And then, like, I remember one Christmas, I got him it on DVD. I don't even know if that came open because he just watched it. It was always on TV somewhere, and he'd always flip on by it, and he'd continue watching The Fugitives. So this is, yeah, this, I'm pretty sure this is my, this was, you know, he's no longer with us, but, like, I'm pretty sure this was his favorite movie of all time, though he didn't like to admit to, like, liking things in a certain way or being, like, crazy about something. I'm pretty sure, like, Dude didn't go to a movie in the theater twice, let alone like the four times he saw like The Fugitive and continued to watch it all the time. So um, that's a so this movie kind of has that special place for me with that. Um, but aside from that, I think this movie rocks. It's still I still like it. Uh, the, going back through it, though, the funny thing is like all the things you a lot of the things you think about from this movie, big iconic moments is like in the first half hour. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. crazy how much it plows through uh like the the director credit comes up like it takes a break in the opening credits like it starts with crediting people <laughs> and then it lets him get arrested and get on the bus and it's like okay for, uh our director... cinematography by <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> tried convicted condemned to death yeah. on the prison bus oh wait we're we still have credits remember finish. the production our design? director our director <laughs> da, 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 casting by like and and that the dire- always throws me for a loop every time we should leisurely do this yeah, yeah. <laughs> 14 minutes like there's john carpenter's prince of darkness and then there's the fugitive uh <laughs> with the opening credits but like yeah it's 14 like damn near 15 minutes for the uh andrew davis credit comes up um but yes it's got some big action spectacle set pieces i mean everybody knew this movie probably without seeing it um it's it's good a to b to c i believe scott probably you'll tell it but you had a joke when i first met you about man the internet really changed things sarah harrison ford and the fugitive could have figured out a lot more things with the internet well real quickly i have one minor nitpick which to be fair i did not pick up on until i saw the movie several times gotcha so you know if you i've always found it very it's almost too easy for him to find the, his wife's killer to the point where I genuinely wonder why his high-priced lawyers weren't able to do so. You know, he basically goes into one hospital, sneaks into one computer, does one search, and gets six names, one of whom is the guy. Yeah. And they, they, they did question him, though. He talked about how they the did, which I always threw me for a loop because you'd think, again, his high-priced lawyer would say, these are the people we talked to. Like, oh, shit, that's the guy. Now, again, either it's a minor nitpick, who cares, whatever, the movie still rocks, or it's supposed to be some kind of allegory for the 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 flaws of the criminal justice system as we know it, where even a rich white guy like Dr. Richard Kimball could get wrongly convicted of murder because the system's that fucked up. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd argue that's part, that is part of yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's not, obviously, it's not a deal breaker. The movie's still terrific. Um, um, well, uh, what did your dad think of U.S. Marshals? Yeah, I think he saw it like once. Fair. And I think I his like- favorite part of this movie is Tommy Lee Jones. Like, I yeah. think, and he, and he didn't just like, eh, he already had the fugitive. Um, 
I watched but, that again for preparation for this show too, by the way. Yeah, where it's like, and starring Robert Downey Jr. Huh, why is he here? Um, that movie's, fa- I'm sorry, but that movie's fascinating for two for two reasons. One is because it's clearly during the phase when Robert Downey Jr. is very much high on drugs. Yeah, but it, he's chunky also, in that too, isn't he? It, he is, but it's also, yeah. movie, it's also a movie that has a scene where you can very much see that he's very much high on drugs. Oh, so where, he, where he shoots Wesley Snipes and he has this crazy look at his eyes. Oh, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. But he wasn't sober that day. Um, <laughs> So yeah, uh, Tommy Lee Jones in this movie, like he's great, but like I think to compare, like because he wins an Oscar for this movie, I would say the equivalent, and then to now with this movie is like when someone like from a Marvel movie gets nominated because this is like, because I'm watching, I'm like, he's got quippy lines, but this was like par for the course for the pure action model going through with like these kind of characters but i'm like you know what though he does kind of stand out and that's kind of that'd be kind of like you know a marvel person getting nominated for a supporting genre stuff getting these yeah, yeah it's genre like, stuff like Malkovich gets nominated in the same category well, i think even 30 years ago if you go back and read the reviews which are majority positive mm-hmm. even back then this was considered a popcorn entertainment of unusual skill and competence and yeah. artistry yeah. yeah even then they were saying you know they don't make them like this anymore <laughs> well no, it's it's a step above the seagull movies yes. and the van damme movies and, and even was, arnold yeah it was not a surprise when it was nominated for best picture yeah um it was expected to be and again you know be- before this was before you know miramax and or the indie scene sort of took over the oscars i say that without judgment where if where a well-received well-reviewed blockbuster like ghost or uh fatal attraction or the fugitive could get a best picture nomination yeah i mean it took it had seven nominations it had best picture cinematography editing score sound and sound editing like in it and the action stuff yo it makes sense with those but best picture like yeah, and this movie w- was quite a big deal back then. Like, and you're right in that it does something very unusual, in that it gets most of the action out of the way in the first act, and then spends the rest of the movie on character development. Yeah, it's it's suspense. <laughs> it's more, uh, you know, Hitchcock suspense. Yeah. or you know, uh, almost spy thriller stuff. Oh. And I, I would say this is possibly one of the best IP upgrades of all time. And like it is maybe yeah. probably in the nineties because the nineties was loaded with classic or golden era television shows becoming movies. And this yes, is probably this is the up best there. one. This, this is-, is up there with you know, give or take Mission Impossible or the Untouchables in mm-hmm. terms of making a good to great TV show into a spectacularly good movie. Yeah, this would I mean huh? I'm sorry? You named two De Palma movies as far as the Yeah, TV. well, there you yeah. go. Yeah, so I, I mean, one of them. Uh, <laughs> there's good i mean it's good stuff here um i named also, three paramount movies so also i think this is one of the toppest of top tier harrison ford block starring blockbuster i agree too. like it, he's he's you know as much as we talk about Tommy Lee jones he's pretty damn good in here too and i just like noticed little things i'm like man this guy is just great like, no, it, when he was in the 90s and stuff like he just had this like i love his point the harrison ford point you always get <laughs> um but just watching his paranoia, his discomfort, and this guy who's like, even if it kills me, I'm proving my innocence. Like, and you could just tell that in his every move um, through this this movie. But I'll I'll stop babbling. We can keep going on about it. But I'll move to Aaron since Scott. I've been back and forth here. Uh, this is the best movie of the summer. Um, granted, there's a left this month left of August, mm-hmm. I guess, so we can still see if. That Christopher Lambert. You have a chance. Jason goes to hell. And... 
but I've seen most of the movies that we have left. This is the best movie of the summer by like easily to me. Like, yes, I love Jurassic Park, but I, I this movie rules. I mean, the, the Fugitive is so good in so many ways. And you're exactly right about Harrison Ford. I watched it this time because I've seen it plenty of times. I watched it with the Andrew Davis commentary. Mm-hmm. Um, who he does a good job. He, he, it's Andrew, it's supposed to be Andrew Davis and Tabley Jones. Tabley Jones steps in, he's like, Oh, we watch it. Fugitive, all right, and that's it. Like, he doesn't say much of anything <laughs> else around the rest of the commentary. <laughs> like, and they're they're in the room together so i guess it's just really waiting patiently like watching the movie and enjoying it or something but i watched it with the commentary um harrison ford the scene where he's in the interrogation room and he's like realizing that he's being basically fingered for the murder yeah that's that's an entirely improv scene that's like they just put two guys in there asked him real questions he didn't know what the questions were going to be and he just reacted to it oh that's amazing and it's such a great scene. He's like, you find this man. Like the way he gets so intense and also like t- crack, like cracks and starts crying. It's so like, it so sets you up. Like you were just saying, as far as um how you might not be able to leave Michael Douglas. Album. You Harrison Ford, you right away are like, obviously this guy's innocent, but he has yeah. to like play in this way. He's so good throughout this movie and the way he's inhabiting this character and making it feel believable and grounded and everything. It's such a great, like, blockbuster performance and then on top of that yeah then you have Tommy Lee Jones you talk about your dad loving uh, this movie um and the time my mom loved Tommy Lee Jones like she liked Harrison Ford she loved Tommy mm-hmm. Lee Jones oh yeah loved his his his, uh, his cadence and everything and so like him like just well, he's got punching people. bags of like yeah. joy pants and roebuck to just like just beat yeah. up that's <laughs> great every scene he's yeah. in it's so great and it's so quippy and fun and you're like you look at you look at Tommy Lee Jones and like people sit like think serious like do you remember the role he won the Oscar for yes it's like serious but it's a fun role it's so mm-hmm. like it, it's so just enjoy you can see why they would make a bad spin-off sequel of it because yeah why would you not want to get more Tommy Lee Jones doing this <laughs> <laughs> yeah that movie's not good it's got good stuff in it but like of course you want to get more of this guy like you want to see the continuing events of sam gerard and so yeah like that stuff's great these set pieces are wonderful <laughs> like the, the and yeah a lot of them happened at the beginning but stuff like the like the chicago chase through the parade mm-hmm. and everything is really cleverly done there's always a parade in these like thriller movies going on to hide in well it, it's a crutch and i don't say that without a criticism but it's a way to end a chase scene like that yeah. but, it makes it's a good way to make use of scale too right? yes yeah, that, that whole thing yeah here, where yeah. he's in the building that whole that is tense, yeah that's even great though, yeah. when he gets almost gets caught in the prison in the I door always, I have, yeah i always love the juliette moore's credit very high this well, so like, is Sella Ward, who's only there to die. Well, Sella Ward, like, she's the wife. Uh, I, get but like, I get that. That makes she, sense to me. Like, I, like, I thought about Sella Ward. I'm like, man, this woman was destined to only play like news anchors and like yeah. small role wives. Like, in the movies. She did better on yeah. TV. Yeah, she did better on TV. But like, to, go, to go back to Ford for a second, though, because like there's the scene early on. But the other scene I really love is when he confronts the guy in the audience when he's talking about Provasic and he like <laughs> like he get he get he's standing there and the guy's thrown off and he walks up to him and the audience is all watching him and the way Harrison Ford like just like ramps up and in, in like anger at this man as he's talking about like why he killed his wife and everything and he's like starting he took like, pokes him and everything and the audience like <gasps> like it's all good and then <laughs> but then I love the toss up after he's left and Harrison Ford's about to leave he's like he faked the he faked the samples so he can do all this so he can tell you Provasic. <laughs> yeah. and it's such a relatable what you you know theoretically what you would do in that situation of course yeah. you would turn to the crowd and explain that 
you know, what just happened. And he's like, just the way he tosses it off, it's so good. This movie just is so like, enjoy, it's so snappy and felt like it's, it's just, such it's, a great it's, scene and inspired an onion article. We even talked about like him jumping off a dam and it's like, yeah, that stuff's great. But like this whole yeah. movie the dam was everything. That yeah. was like, he's like, I didn't kill my wife. I don't care. Jumps. This, this movie this movie's just, it's, it's so well constructed. It's the kind of thing where it's like, I wish Andrew Davis like brought more to the action world. As far as this goes. Yes. He has other movies after this, but the fugitive is such a hard peak as far as like how good you can make this kind of a thing. Let alone, let alone an IP adaptation of a TV series mm-hmm. and condense what's like, what a four season, five season series into just one fucking great movie. That's too yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's just, yeah, this movie is, it's- it's it's so great. It's such a great movie. You can watch this anytime of mm-hmm. anybody. Like it's such a just a, a rip roaring good time of a blockbuster that's really smart for what it's doing. Yeah, Scott. Yeah, I mean it's it's. I think it's one of Harrison Ford's best performances in any movie, you know, blockbuster or otherwise. I think it's a perfect use of what he does well because he's playing a character who is not an action hero by any stretch of the imagination. So the conventional Harrison Ford persona where, you know, even when he's playing like Han Solo or Nina Jones, he doesn't want to fight his, you know, he grimaces when he gets hit. He's as scared as you or I. And that is something that's put to great empathetic use in this picture because he is just a regular guy. And, you know, the, the big thing about the damn scene isn't just the stunt. It's the look he gives before he jumps over or he's just as terrified as you or I would be. Um, and it's it's such a human grounded performance in a, in a shockingly grounded movie. Because, again, even 30 years ago, they're like, you know, wow, all of these action scenes are, you know, believe your eyes plausible. And it wasn't just that they really did a lot of them, but they did really do a lot of them. But there's a certain you know small scale plausibility both in terms of the action and frankly in terms of the violence it's not a particularly violent picture um and it has a, an entirely plausible body count because you have you know conspirators that realize you can't leave halls of civilians and cops lying around and expect to get away with it mm-hmm. um and it's just such a terrific real world Hitchcocky and innocent man on the run thriller that also happens to be you know an adaptation of a television show as you said and it yeah I mean it's it's it is one of the best blockbuster movies of the 90s and you know I mean I can debate whether I prefer this or in the line of fire but I'll be I'll happily take the fact we got both of them in one summer because those they're both just fucking great movies. And I think if I'm honest, yes, the fugitive is a better, more tightly constructed machine. Um because it just it 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 barely takes a false step for two solid hours. Yeah. Um uh they did uh I remember I remember CBS uh when the summer this came out brought back the original show. I think Nick Ignite did too. Yeah. So I got to catch, I got to watch the original one, and that's something that would happen frequently. They would bring back these old shows if the movies came on. Now it'd just be like, what streaming service? Oh, it's not on any. Oh, okay. Well. Um, but yeah, I remember watching they brought it, and they tried to revamp it with Tim Daly for TV that did not in the fall of 2000 season. 
Yeah, that yeah. Poor that Tim was Daly. Be, that uh, was always going to be a star. Always, gonna, and then it wasn't till. Do you know what the show that premiered at nine o'clock was on CBS? CSI Crime Scene Investigation. Oh wow! It's always the other one. <laughs> it's always the oh the. Ah. There was, was also the, there was also the Pretender that was on for. Mm. Oh yeah, I remember that show. Which uh, my mom liked that show too. It ran for like four years, I think. Yeah, it, yeah. it was success. It ran. It ended in two thousand, but that was you know obviously riffing off of the fugitive uh, doing its own thing, which I mean, the idea of like, a, you know, man of checkered past is not the most original idea for a TV series in general, but like, that's certainly it was aiming. For that's that. the thing is I, I think, and whether or not this was because you had Harrison Ford, who generally did not play fatally flawed characters at that time. But I do think, I, don't know, but, would, I mean, yeah, presumed other than mosquito like, post, maybe he had presumed innocent and in like he had a number. Let me, let me rephrase like, that in a movie like this. Fair. Okay. Yeah, you're right, because you're right. You're right. He, was, he was doing his like Oscar thing for a while in the yeah. 80s. But I mean, in a movie like this, I think if you had gotten Baldwin or some of the other names, if you watch the show, their their marriage is a lot more problematic than it is in the movie. And especially for this, if I recall, for those first few episodes, you think maybe he did do it. I don't know. Um, and but but getting back to the movie. I think its greatest triumph and a big reason why it works is you are rooting for both Tommy Lee Jones and Harrison Ford, even though they are diametrically opposed characters. Right. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of the Tommy Lee Jones leads you to believe that something bad is going to happen to Harrison Ford. Incidentally, that Tommy Lee Jones isn't going to realize till it's too late. Like, that's kind of the suspense you get there with with uh, with that. Yeah. but no, he's and this is a game. This is a career changer for Tommy Lee Jones after this. Like, oh God, yes, yes. He is he is the go to cop in any sort of like thriller movie. But like he's he gets he becomes Two Face. Like I, I mean, like if he doesn't win that Academy Award for this, like or he's probably not Two Face, right? Yeah, because someone he's else. But I mean, but, Joel Schumacher had worked with him a few times before, yeah. so it, it wasn't beyond the realm of possibility. But that, um, that's an instant yes from the studio. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah, he was a get because coming off of JFK and the Fugitive and what happened Two under Face, Siege. Two Face feels like the last time he goes big. Yeah. Well, because he, he obviously had a miserable time doing it. Well, and yeah. then and I think it's kind of neat too when he gets to No Country for Old Men. It kind of feels like the old retired version of this character that's already yeah. been through and ha- he's still got that. Still got a little bit of that spark, but he's 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 been through it at all. But like, yeah, this oh. is uh, iconic. Yeah, but it's 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 funny. Like we don't talk about like, like this is why we have Tommy Lee Jones, who's Tommy Lee Jones, because I mean he's the bad guy in in Under Siege, but he's the villain a lot before this. Uh, yeah, before this, and there's God, he's before. great in Under Siege. Jesus, more, morally questionable a lot before. Yeah, this. and then. I mean, back in the day, you had Rolling Thunder and some other B movies throughout the Ooh. '80s, but you know, right here is where he's lifting off. Um, but yeah, I yeah, Fugitive is just awesome. Like I think even today, you could pop it in and be like, "Oh shit, this is awesome!" Yeah, because we have. Yeah, I, we I'm have. pretty sure if we didn't watch it for this podcast, we all watched it during lockdown. Well, I mean, why not? Yeah, I mean that. Yeah, it is that. Why not? Maybe that's why you know my dad always on TV is like, "Why not?" Why not? I mean, I know where this is going. It's always fun to watch. Like, and just Harrison Ford is a guy that you'll go through everything. Watching him on the run is enticing. And like, he's not even speaking a lot of this 
either. And you're just like, okay, watching like close-ups of a computer screen, watching them go through prosthetics and stuff. And yeah, and I think I love little touches throughout where like he's helping. Um, yeah. Even though it's against his best interest. Yeah, you know? he can't like, stop being a doctor. Yeah. He yeah. can't stop saving lives, even when it's yeah. not in his interest to do so. Which I don't know these other, like we said, those other actors could pull off that stuff even even if it's in the script i don't know that they could pull it off like harrison ford could like could you imagine nick nolte like just yeah, yeah just reading the list like, i think that was the only one that could do this like yeah. not, not necessarily as well as harrison ford but i do think that that's like the one where it's like i can see douglas like making this kind of work but douglas is kind of the guy's like what was he you know was he that or, you know there's gonna be some like mistress that he has oh yeah that's gonna help he was him, totally right? like, cheating on his wife yeah he's so like he's always got that kind of Fair. I'm doing. <laughs> By the way, we talked about Free Willy a couple weeks ago. We had Richard Real without a mustache. It was like this is yep. confusing. He this grew back. Have, yeah. We have we have real Richard Real <laughs> with mustache <laughs> as one of the guards on the prison bus who has to change his story all of a sudden. <laughs> was that great? Great entrance to takeover by Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah. That, that is just oh, that, that thing plays so well. It's Who's so the uh, Nick Searchy? Nick Searchy is the like the other cop. Mm-hmm. Oh, like, and then uh, what's his name? The guy who played. Um, Julia Louise Dreyfus' husband on Veep shows yeah. up to ask a question at a press conference. I was oh, like, yeah. man, everybody's in this. There's a ton of character. U.S. Marshals is actually very similar. There's a lot of like people in that movie too. As far as like, yeah, they, you know, I'm, you're right. It's not a good movie, but that's why I do periodically enjoy almost watching it. Like Tracy Letts is the cop that gets taken over by Tommy Lee Jones in that movie when he gives the big old speech about yeah. and everything. Um, but yeah, that movie's not very good. That movie confused me too because I was like, I used to like. I knew Wesley Snipes as a man with hair and facial hair. Yeah. Then, like he's entirely shaven. And it was so confusing watching the trailer. I was like, that's Wes- what's happening with Wesley Snipes. Did they and do I'm that like, to uh, make him look like less intense or something? So it'd be a, like he's, oh, he's innocent. I, I think it's a mix of that and the fact that it's the fugitive. So he has to have disguises. So if he doesn't have any hair, oh. that's true. You can put wigs and stuff on him. Gotcha. So. Gotcha. True, true. Uh, Gotcha. So, Scott, how'd The Fugitive do this week? Fucking great, man. <laughs> uh, it opened with a whopping $23.7 million, which was a record for August. And frankly, off the top of my head, I don't remember when that record was taken down. Um, I know Mortal Kombat came close in 1995 on the same weekend. Um, but this one kept the milestone for August openers for a while. Um, six cents. Okay, no, that's probably what it was. It was six cents. Sure, shit wasn't the Avengers. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, which is another fucking awesome movie that ran forever and ever. But I digress. And you know, when I talk about the, I mean, the Fugitive had was was the first example that I can think of, and I'm sure there's others where you have the last big movie of the summer that legs out like a motherfucker because there's nothing else until the kids go back to school. And it got an A plus from Cinema Score back when that wasn't quite as. I mean, Warner had a very good summer in terms of quality because mm-hmm. Free Willy also got an A plus from Cinema Score. Um, and it would earn one hundred and eighty three point nine million dollars domestic, Ooh. which adjusted for inflation is four hundred and seven million dollars. Beat that dial of destiny. Oh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> spoiler: It won't. But anyway, um, You'll and, what it does. Yeah, wait. 
I figure I'm fucked this summer anyway in the pool, so I might as well go crazy with my predictions, which by the time this airs will probably be, you know, my fate will be. We'll know. We'll know. We'll know. We'll know about Brandon Peters' number one pick, Dial of Destiny. We'll see if it did. Oh, that you picked before. the number one? Wow. Number one. Yeah. Fair enough. Go, for, you go big or go one, home. Aaron? Sorry? Would you pick as uh, number one? Guardians. Fair yeah. enough. Trendy, trendy, trendy with the guardian. You mean there's right. a lot? There's there's five different number one options. Oh, right? really? With this time of this recording, yes. Okay. Um. So anyway, it did 184 domestic. It did 354 worldwide on a 44 million dollar budget. Fuck. So again, you know, back in the day, you know, if your movie made 350 million, you made an ungodly amount of money because you know 40 to 60 was a huge budget. What's Harrison Ford do after this? Clear and present danger. Oh man, which is also an awesome movie. That movie rocks. Yeah. Um, I mean that's that's yeah that that to me is by far the best Jack Ryan picture. Um, all due respect to Shadow, I can't even say that straight face. (laughs) (laughs) With the light bulb, about nothing. All right. (laughs) Um, so this would be the top film for the next, I think, four or five weekends. Um. And yeah, it was it was a monster. It was the second biggest film domestically in the summer behind Jurassic Park. It outgrossed the firm in the line of fire, <laughs> last action hero. Um <laughs> and it 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 um number two was Rising Sun with nine million dollars, dropping forty percent in its second weekend for a thirty-one million dollar ten day total. Number three, still sticking around, the other kick-ass thriller of summer nineteen ninety-three, uh freewheel, I mean in the line of fire, right. um, which for five point eight million dollars, dropping just twenty-seven percent. Um, it would earn seventy-seven million at the end of week five. It would eventually cross a hundred million domestic. Uh number four, free will eat jokes aside. A lot of middle-aged action stars like making their way in the top ten. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, Free Willy would earn five point four million in weekend four, dropping just twenty-three percent to raise its cum to fifty. Excuse me, forty-five million dollars. Jurassic Park still in the top five after nine weekends uh, would earn five million dollars, dropping twenty-six percent uh, for a two hundred ninety-two million dollar total at that point. Something worth noting as we go through this. I mean, you have all these big movies that are playing in. You know, at best, 2,000, 2,300 screens. I think that partially is why you have legs, because when your wide release is closer to 2,000 screens than 3,000 screens, there are people that want to see it that maybe don't get a chance to see it right away or in their first opportunity to drive out to the theater because it gets sold out. Or maybe it's not at a theater that's near you yet. And even some of these wide release pictures would like Rising Sun added 165 theaters in its second weekend. You know, were you one of those people that when it opened to 1500 screens last weekend, it was maybe a little too far away from you? I don't know. But the word of mouth was like Connery speaking Japanese. It's fucking nuts. You got to go see it. Exactly. You guys, (laughs) computer image manipulation. (laughs) They have little mini discs. They don't even use VHS tapes. (laughs) There's ghosts. <laughs> um, the firm, the other blowout action thriller, or uh, kind of action thriller, a thriller of the summer would the earn four. Action theme, yeah. I'm sorry, 
The Brimley scenes are brimming about. Yes, yes. Uh, 4.7 million, dropping 34%, 133. It was winding down. It would end up with about 155 domestic. Uh, Robin Hood Men in Tights would drop 35% in its second weekend, earning $4.5 million for an 18.3 total. Sleepless in Seattle, eighth place with 3.6 million, dropping 25% in 1,400 screens. Uh, it would bring its total up to 96. It would end up with about 115, give or take. Um, I'm going off that memory, so I apologize. I'm off by a couple bucks. What week is, what week is Sleepless in Seattle? Uh, weekend seven. Yeah. Seven? Yeah. Yeah. It's been. Uh, it's been like forever ago since we talked about that movie. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Meteor Man would open with in a thousand theaters uh, with just $2.6 million. It would eventually earn an underwhelming $8 million domestic on a $20 million budget. Alas. To be fair, Mia Culpa, I didn't see it in theaters either. By the way, I was wrong. Leapers in Seattle made $127 million by the end, not mm-hmm. $115 million. Um, and then in 10th place, Poetic Justice dropping 58%. Wow. In weekend three. That one sank two, fast. It like, did. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't think it was super well received at the time by audiences and critics alike. Um, and it's possible that it, quite frankly, played less white. So the people that were yeah. going to show up did so in the first, you know, 10 days. And then the audience just plummeted. Plus you got two Michael Jackson songs in the top 10. You don't need Janet Jackson. In on yeah. That is exactly correct. You heard Janet on the radio. She was in the theater. I mean, she probably people were saying you were not alone, but Janet was. So. Okay. <laughs> um, it would have 25 million by the end of day 17. Um, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves in its 2,903rd weekend <laughs> uh, would earn $874,000. All right. Uh, again, I have to assume that's a record in terms of the number, you know, for a film in its 2,903rd <laughs> weekend. I mean, maybe Gone with the Wind, but no, that, that didn't get re released again anytime soon. Um, I'm pretty sure this. Re- movie to get a in its most recent re-release uh we also had my boyfriend's back john debuted that's at not even 16. the top 15 where and is it six number 16 with 1.465 million dollars i don't that's know what it total. deserves and uh also we talked about it earlier but it actually opened this week at the wedding banquet uh the ang lee film uh opened with 134,870 for 18th place fair enough so um, slight spoiler for next weekend. The number one movie is going to again be The Fugitive, which drops six percent in its second Whoa. weekend. <laughs> people, um, people again, about it. Six Sense. Here we, you know, it's, it's almost identical to what happened to Six Sense, which Ooh. also got nominated for Best Picture despite being a, you know, perceived as and sold as a summer popcorn entertainment. And we were all hoping. We were all like, Haley. Haley I Joel. was rooting for him, and it was uh, the Siren House fucking rules. Michael Kane. It was <laughs> what what always Sire got House. me. Was, I was sitting there Oscar night, being like, "All right, Haley Jolaza, let's see this happen." Yeah, but but like second place, I'm like, "Well, Michael Clark Duncan's right there." So when whoever reads the thing, I'm like, "It's not Haley, Michael Clark." <laughs> it, like, it was like the Mark Rylance, Mark Ruffalo oh, year. <laughs> Mark Raw. <laughs> <laughs> um, we gave you best picture, Mark. It's okay. That's all you get, other than I think one other award. You get to come up on stage. Um, 
Mark Ruffalo, not successful after that. No. <laughs> it ended him, man. It was sad. It was truly his end game. <laughs> um. So yeah, uh, that that the, that's pretty much the end. All right. For by, by the episode. way, oh, by the way, the fugitive, great score. The oh James yeah, yes. Score. Oh, oh my man. god, I so can't, like everything. I'm like, oh god, this and this and this. Dump, 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 dump. I was ah, oh. it's so, so good. good. And even yeah. I mean, we know we talk about that where he jumps off the dam. The, the showing where it like lifts up over his head and showing down in the day that just is oh so that would have been great in IMAX that would have been a great oh IMAX God. moment you know if that came back to IMAX I'd seriously consider it I would go it's it's such an easy what if in August they just surprises out of the blue this August the future <laughs> the anniversary reformatted for IMAX presentation <laughs> I am Harrison Ford thank you for coming to see and you have Chris Nolan going what the fuck Come on. Remember, choose Regal. Yeah. Thank you for coming <laughs> to you have a lot of options you can see in the theater. I've heard something about uh, Screen X. I don't know what that is. <laughs> all right. Well, all right, that'll do it for this weekend. That was August 6th through 8, 1993. Scott and Aaron, always we're we're getting to the final turn here. Uh well, we're in the final turn. I'm so, so there. So tired. Before we sign out and Scott goes to sleep, where no, can I people mean, find you? Mind. I was <laughs> referring existentially. No, but um, therap.com. And at, I'm on still on Twitter. Maybe whether or not we all will be by August, who knows? But uh, we will. Scott, yeah, I know, I know. At Scott, at Scott Mendelson on Twitter. I might have just jinxed it and it's dead already. And we're just sitting New here. New sky, but... here we come. Or all right. Week. Aaron. Well, obviously, um, Aaron's PS4 on Bleep Boar for whatever social media we have going, but I'm um, also on Twitter at Aaron's PS4. I host a podcast with my friend Abe called Out Now with Aaron and Abe. We are currently in the midst of the summer, which means we are going through our 11th annual summer movie gamble, uh, where myself I am winning. Many of the guests on the show, including Brandon and Scott, have predicted what we think are going to be the top 10 highest grossing films of the summer. Uh, this is super fun to do, as always, uh, and it's very competitive because we like to have bragging rights for these things. Uh, but that show talks about movies on a weekly basis. Always very fun. I write movie reviews for League of Entertainment and Blu-ray and Criterion reviews for Why So Blue. Um, I'm curious what Criterion's have we reviewed at this point because we just got through July where there's a lot of cool stuff. After hours. <laughs> um, and I, uh, everything I do can be found on my blog, CodeZeek.com. All right. Thank you. So uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Brandon4KUHD. Written work at WhySoBlue.com. Next week. Under the secret garden lies a hell that contains the hearts and souls of Bobby Fisher. All that and more wow. as the summer of 93 at 30 continue. I'm impressed. I save it to the end, Scott. <laughs> it's the summer of 93 at 30. Thank you for listening. The Brandon Peters Show is a Creative Zombie Studios production. Produced by Brad Shoemaker and Brandon Peters. Written and edited by Brandon Peters. Announcer vocals by Jessica Alsman. Theme song by Metavari. Web design and show art by Brad Shoemaker with Brandon Peters. All music and clips featured in the episode are property of their respective studios and no infringement is intended. The Summer of and News Themes by Press Maxson. 
Additional information on this and other episodes at thebrandandpetershow.com. For any inquiries, press opportunities, or sponsorship, contact mail at thebrandandpetershow.com. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are found.